Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Uh, if you're using one of the black Bibles in the rack in front of you, I think it's page 928. I want to express appreciation for uh, uh, Chris Turner, Dr. Turner, for uh, leading our um, choir and worship service. Um, in uh, Andre's absence, he will be back with us this, uh, this next week. Uh, we here love our church. Uh, 134 years this church has stood as a testimony to Christ in this community for seven generations. Uh, this church has taught the word, has worshiped the Savior, has impacted families, has led little boys and little girls to Christ today. Uh, our church stands as the largest church in this county, a hub of the faith family for hundreds of homes, a strong and growing children's ministry and youth ministry. Uh, we send scores of people every year around the world on mission for Christ. We impact hundreds of people through our television broadcast and our internet streaming each week. People in nursing homes and hospitals and in residences uh, we are faithful and remain faithful to preaching the word and worshiping in spirit and in truth. We love our church. Uh, this is a strong church, and there are lots of ways to measure that. Uh, we are a strong church in that we are a giving church. Uh, last year, 2017, we had our largest church budget ever uh, until 2018. Those things tend to go up. Uh, but last year, uh, you gave and exceeded uh, the budget requirements by a six-figure number. Last year, you gave over $70,000 to international missions through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. That is an amazing thing. Uh, we are, as a church, one of the largest contributors to missions in the state of Texas. And last year, through all the different funds that were given, over $400,000 went from our church to share the gospel, to spread the good news across the United States and around the world. This is a strong church. This is a serving church. I stand in front of one of the biggest and best choirs in the state of Texas. Absolutely. And if you're not involved in the intricacies of what happens on Sunday, you probably couldn't even imagine all the people it takes to pull off a Sunday here. All the people working in Sunday school and youth ministry and children's ministry and all the people it takes to do this. People in a sound booth up here, uh, tech booths downstairs, all the things that happen to make this possible. We are a serving church. We are a going church. We are a loving church. And because of all of these things and more, we love our church. And since we love our church, for the next few weeks, I want to talk to you about some renovation that we need to undertake. Uh, this is, uh, for me and you, I've been pastor here for about a year, almost a year. Uh, this is our first time uh, to talk about financial needs. And I know when a pastor begins to talk about finances, people immediately put up their shields. Uh, so since, since this is our first go around, let me give you some ground rules. Will that help? Let's just talk about some ground rules of how we'll go through this for the next uh, two or three weeks. Uh, number one, uh, there will be no arm twisting. Uh, my commitment, and this is serious, if you don't want to give, don't give. If this isn't a passion of yours, if you're not excited about it, if you don't feel led to give, just don't give. There will be no arm twisting in the next two or three weeks. In fact, my former chairman of deacons from my last church is here from Ohio today. And uh, so you can, uh, you can talk to him. He and I have been through a few of these, right? And uh, there will be no arm twisting. Secondly, though, I will, I will communicate the need. Our church has some needs, and we're going to talk about them in a moment, and, and, and I'm just going to talk straight to you. Can you handle that? I'm just going to tell you exactly what some of our needs are. No exaggeration, no hyperbole, but I'm going to communicate what our real needs are. You need to know some of these things, and we're not going to hide any of them from you. So we will communicate the needs. Number three, we will unapologetically preach what God's Word says about money. 
You know, Jesus spoke more about money than any other single topic. In fact, Jesus spoke more about money than any other two topics put together. Not because Jesus was taking up an offering, but because Jesus knew that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. In fact, those are his words. Jesus knew what the apostle Paul would write when he said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and by craving it, some have wandered from the faith and they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We will unapologetically preach and teach what God's word has to say about money, not because we need some, we do need some, but because you and I need to know and embrace for our families, for our spiritual success, we need to know what God's word says about money. And then number four, ground rule number four, we will view this as an opportunity and as a blessing. Uh, this is going to be a, a great two or three weeks. Don't let the, these renovation weeks, this campaign focus keep you from coming to church. We're going to love on our church in the next few weeks. And two weeks from now, on March the 4th, uh, we're going to gather around uh, and focus on this old building that we love and uh, we're going to make some commitments and we're going to love on this building because we love the Lord, because we love the generations of people who have given sacrificially to make this available to us uh, because we love children and youth and the opportunity to minister to them and we care for the lost in our community. This is going to be a good experience. Now let me talk to you for a minute and we're going to get to the word in a moment, I promise. But let me just talk to you briefly about our needs. And we've talked about these over the last two or three weeks. You know these maybe better than I do. But listen, church, we have some real needs in our facility. We love our facility. As I heard somebody say over the last two or three weeks, I think it was uh, Mark McClendon, our executive pastor, this, this facility has great bones. I mean, we love what God has given us here. But it is in dire need of a facelift. And, and not just a cosmetic change. Uh, there are some real critical needs that our facility has. We could just start in this worship center. Uh, some of the pews that you're sitting in, uh, we want you to sit gently, okay? <laughs> because... Um, I don't know if, if you would be more embarrassed or we would be more embarrassed if, if, if it collapsed, but just sit gently. We have so many needs just in this room. We have, we have water damage and panelings that are buckled. We have water uh, damage in our ceiling. We, we have pews that have, that have absolutely got to have something done to them, uh, both so that uh, they look nice, so that they are comfortable, and uh, so that they are durable for, uh, for, you know, for all the... Uh, the fannies that'll come and sit in them in the next few weeks and months. And so we have got to do some things right here in this worship center. We can't go on like we have been. We have come to the point of criticality. We must do some things here. But it's not just here in the worship center. Uh, we, have, um, we have a need for a new kitchen. Uh, this is a busy place. We have events going on almost seven days a week uh, here in our church. We have ministries. We have outside groups as well who use our kitchen, who, who are fixing food uh, for, uh, for different events. Ministry happens in the heart of our kitchen. But if you've been to our kitchen, you know that it's like going to some antique mall and seeing how they used to prepare food many, many years ago. We need a new kitchen. Now that's extraordinarily expensive. I don't even know how expensive that is. I just know that we put a kitchen in our house here recently and it uh, broke the bank. It'll break the bank here. We need though a new kitchen. It's not just an option. It's not just it would be nice to have. Many of our ministries depend upon a reliable, safe, sanitary kitchen that, that, that allows us to, to serve. And we must do something there. Uh, we have needs in our fellowship hall. We, we have needs just in the, in the structural part of our buildings because there are places where there's water leaking. And if you know anything about construction, you know that as expensive as those things are to fix now, they will be more expensive to fix later. We have places where paint's coming off walls, where, where, where drywall is sagging because of water issues. We have some real needs just in this um, 
the access to this building. Uh, many of you came in this morning through an elevator in the back. Now that elevator is safe. If it weren't safe, we would close it down. So don't, don't panic. If you use the elevator to get in, we will get you out. But I, <laughs> but I were, it's a little nervous laughter, I think. <laughs> our, um, our elevator, our access situation is, is poor. Uh, the elevator will not last much longer. Experts tell us that it, uh, its days are numbered. In fact, they're surprised it is uh, as reliable as it is today. It cannot be repaired. If there is a major problem with the elevator, uh, then it will be shut down. Uh, it cannot be replaced in its current shaft. Uh, in the last uh, 700 years since, since that elevator has been there, all the building codes have changed, the sizes. It just, it's not a simple fix. It is a fix that costs a great deal of money and would take a, a very long period of time. We can't wait until that's an emergency. We need to declare it an emergency today and we need to get on that solution. Uh, we have many people in our church that uh, that elevator is vital to them coming and worshiping. I visited a family just uh, two or three weeks ago who told me uh, that they uh, do not come to our church because uh, the steps are just too much and the elevator is not reliable. And uh, I don't know how many people uh, would be adversely affected if we postpone that uh, fix any, any longer. And, and even though if we replace that elevator for whatever that would cost and however long that would take, that still does not solve one of our biggest access problems. Uh, once you get in this building, you can't get to the rest of our ministry facilities without going up or down steps. Uh, this, uh, this building is just, it's four feet up or down to whichever floor you want to go to. Uh, most of our building is completely inaccessible. Uh, to, uh, to people who can't um, handle the steps. And so there may be a solution. We're not sure. We have an architect coming in uh, next week to look at some things. But there may be a solution so that if we are going to install an elevator, maybe we could solve all of our problems at once. But if that does exist, and we're not sure it exists, uh, but if that solution does exist, that's going to be a very expensive thing. Listen, church, we've come to the place where we must do something about our facilities. I, I don't want to exaggerate, but we are not far from cordoning off parts of our building and saying we can't use those any longer uh, because they are not, uh, uh, they're not in the shape that they need to be. Uh, we have some real needs. Now, I'm not the first to notice this or the first to say something about this. I know that it's been the focus and the attention of the church for some time. Uh, dozens of people literally have pulled me aside in the last year and have uh, pointed out problems and asked that the church address those problems. You can look and see. Give yourself a, a self-tour when this service is over. Uh, look at handrails. Look at, look at just about any surface in our church. Carpet in the youth worship center you would be scared to walk on uh, without boots on. It, you just take a look around. And the scary thing is the things that you don't see may be more serious than the things uh, that you do. Now, let me take a moment and just talk to church members. So if you're not a church member, this next uh, two minutes is not for you. So just stick your fingers in your ears or check your Facebook. But church members, listen, can I just, can I just be really honest with you for a moment? You and I wouldn't let our houses look like this. We wouldn't let our yards look like this. We have the worst piece of grass on North Street. You wouldn't let water run down inside your walls. You wouldn't let water stains remain on your ceiling or have carpet that's uh, unsanitary in places. Uh, you have a higher standard than that for your house. And I know, I believe you have a higher standard than that for your church. I think about what the prophet Haggai said. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruins? Now we're not lying in ruins. I don't want to exaggerate. We, we, we're okay. We're safe. We're sanitary. But listen, it's time for us to take a step forward and have the same standard here. Listen, no, 
to have a higher standard here than we have in our, in our homes. So you might say, well, pastor, okay, what is it going to take? Well, I don't know. I have walked to the halls with men and women in our church, men and women who have been here a long time, know a lot more than I do, people who know things about construction. And uh, they tell me uh, that it's going to cost north of $1 million for us to get our facilities and our landscaping and our access problems in the shape that they need to be in. Uh, that's a lot of money. How are we as a church going to handle a $1 million renovation project in one year? That's our goal. Well, it's going to take everybody doing their part. Uh, we don't need anybody to give any more than God directs them to give. Uh, but we need everybody to pray and say, Lord, I'll be obedient to what you put upon my heart. We need people to be serious about some above and beyond giving for 2018. So let me take a moment. We're going to get to the word in a minute. But let me take a moment and just share with you our goals uh, for, uh, for this renovation project. The first goal, I, we've set three goals. I think we can show these to you on the screen. The first goal we're calling our praise goal, $500,000. Now, I'll tell you how I came up with this. Uh, I eventually consulted with our renovation team and our deacons to get input on these goals. Uh, but in my mind, before I did that, I had my own goal. I had what I thought we could do. And I really thought that it would be a successful campaign if we raised between three dollars and $500,000. That's what I thought. I thought we couldn't do what we want to do. We couldn't even do perhaps half what we want to do. But three dollars to $500,000, that would be more money than we have raised in a single campaign since we built the children's building over a decade ago. We certainly could celebrate if God gave us three dollars to $500,000. Uh, so that, uh, after talking to the deacons and our renovation team, that went from my high goal to my low goal. Uh, but I'm calling that a praise goal because I think that's significant. $500,000 is a lot of money. And if, uh, if uh, through your generosity and sacrifice, we raise $500,000, we can do many things that we need to do. Uh, perhaps not the elevator project and those kinds of things, but we can do many things. And that would be reason to praise the Lord. So that's goal number one, praise the Lord goal. And then I decided after consulting with those uh, individuals in our church that we would have a second goal uh, that I'm calling I Stand Amazed goal. <laughs> Uh, because $700,000 is uh, really twice what I thought we would get just uh, six or eight weeks ago uh, before talking to some of the men and women in our church. And uh, it would put many more projects on the table if, uh, if our people were that generous and gave that amount of money. And I would literally stand amazed. I would be speechless if God were so good to us as to give us $700,000. But I had... Uh, some men, particularly in our church, uh, come to me in the last uh, few weeks and they've said, Pastor, I really think our goal ought to be the full million dollars. They said, I think our church can do this. Now, I'm scared to death of a million dollar goal. Can I tell you that? Am I confessing to a lack of faith? I don't think I've ever had a financial campaign in all my ministry where we didn't reach the goal, um, but a million dollars scares me to death. I'm telling you, the, the stretch that it would take, uh, the trust in the Lord that it would take for us to get to a million dollars in one year would be extraordinary. Uh, but I, I trust those men, and I trust the leadership of the Lord. Uh, me and my family are ready to, we're ready to be a part of this. And uh, wouldn't it be something if God gave us a million dollars and we could catch up all of the things that we need to do here in our facility? You know, renovation is a tough thing. Most churches would never have a renovation campaign. And I, I know, uh, Dr. Scarborough, you've, you've led churches and large churches before. But it's hard to get people excited about renovating. 
If we were building a building, this would be easy, easier. It would be easy though. People get excited about a building. It's hard to get people excited about renovating. It's not sexy enough. You know what I mean? I mean, they give all of that money and you don't build anything new. It's hard. It's hard. Most churches would not have a million dollar renovation campaign, but I believe we can do it for three reasons. We know it will extend the life of our church, of our facilities, of our great worship center, and all of our facilities. It will extend their lives and keep us from having to cordon off areas because in a year or two, they aren't uh, suitable for use. I think we can do it because we love this old building, right? This is the building where your kids were saved and baptized, where some of you were married. There's so many memories in this, uh, in, in, on this campus. We love this church and this building. And I think we're ready to move forward. So how will this work? In two weeks, on March the 4th, Sunday, March the 4th, uh, we're going to ask our church family to do one or more of three things. Number one, we're going to ask people to give a sacrificial, bold, and obedient gift on that day. Uh, there will be an opportunity for you to give by check. You can, uh, we'll have uh, means for you to transfer securities. Uh, if, um, if you want to have a wheelbarrow of cash and bring it in, we will make sure the elevator is working on that day. But uh, um, So there will be an opportunity on that day for you just to give. You just to give. Uh, there will also be an opportunity on that day for you to commit to giving at a later date. Uh, everybody's finances work differently and maybe you want to give but you need to give three months from now or six months from now or at the end of 2018 for tax purposes uh, so so there'll be an opportunity for you to say I'm going to give um, what the Lord has told me to give but it's going to be at a later date uh, the third option uh, some people may want to commit to give weekly or monthly uh, your, just the way your finances work for you to give what, what you believe the Lord wants you to give, you just, you're going to need to stretch it out. I'll tell you where I, where I am. Uh, my family will give on day one. We will, we will give on the fourth. We're excited about that. Uh, but we will, we are not able to give on the fourth, everything that we would like to give. We, we, are just unable to give it all on the same day. So we will give on the 4th, and then we will make a commitment to give monthly for the next year so that we can give everything we feel like the God, the Lord wants us to give. And so you'll be able to do those things on March the 4th. Uh, and then a few weeks later, uh, I think we've scheduled it for March 25th, we'll announce the number, we will celebrate, we will sing, we will, well, we won't dance because we're Baptists, but we'll get real happy and about that close to dancing. Uh, as we see how the Lord blesses us. Now, let's, let's look to the word. I love the parable found in Luke chapter 16. Jesus said two really, really weird things in his ministry that are recorded in God's word. And uh, one of those is found right in the beginning of Luke chapter 16. And uh, if you love teaching the word of God, you... You, you, you will love teaching, uh, studying uh, this uh, very interesting parable uh, found in Luke chapter 16 or page 928. So just to give uh, special reverence uh, to, uh, to God's word this morning, God's infallible and perfect word, let me ask you if you will to stand. We're going to read nine verses. It says, now he said to his disciples... There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. And so a man owned a business, had a manager, and the manager was ripping him off. Verse 2, so he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. And so he fires his manager and says, tomorrow bring me the books and that will be your last day. Verse 3, then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. And so he's come up with a plan. He's going to be fired, but he says, I've got an idea. So even after I'm fired, I won't have to dig ditches. I won't have to beg for bread. I've got a plan. 
Now listen to this plan, verse five. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors and he asked, how much do you owe my master? Verse six, a hundred measures of olive oil, he said. So take your invoice, the manager said, sit down and quickly write 50. So you see what he did? He called in somebody who owed the master a hundred, what, uh, measures of oil, and he cut it in half. Imagine if the bank calls you in and says, we need to talk to you about your mortgage. And you're thinking, oh no, I mean, what's happening? And they, you get there and they cut it in half. I mean, this was a wonderful thing, at least for the, at least for the, the debtor. Look at verse seven. Uh, now he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat? Well, take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master, and what do you think the master's gonna do about that? But notice, this is weird. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. The, the, the master said, you know, I'm unhappy about the money I lost, but wow, that was smart. Now Jesus is going to apply the parable to us. Who do you think Jesus is going to say we ought to be like? The master who uh, was, was, uh, was responsible with this manager who was, uh, who was uh, stealing from him? Or is Jesus gonna say we ought to be like the, the shrewd manager? Look at what Jesus suggests. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, that's what the manager did, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Jesus said, be like this shrewd manager. Startling statement, but let's learn why. Please be seated. We're to emulate this, um, this shrewd manager. And I think as we look back and see the things in this manager's life that we should emulate, and Jesus points them out in verse nine, we see three things that this man did. Shrewd as he was, three things he did that Jesus wants us to do the same thing. Number one, he recognized his limited time. Look back at verse three. It says, the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? He knew that his time was coming to an end. He knew that there was a sense of urgency. He was gonna be out of a job that time the next day. He was about to be unemployed. He was about to have no income, nowhere to live. He was gonna be bankrupt. He was gonna be hungry and homeless. He knew that, that his time was limited. There was a sense of urgency to do something. Thing. I think that's the first thing that we're to emulate about this shrewd manager. We need to have a sense of urgency about the things that God has commanded us to, to do. Now, I, I think we should, be, we should be urgent because of two connected things, but two different things. First of all, we need to understand that time is limited for us because the harvest is ready. We need to understand that our time is limited because there are people out there who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ before the door closes, before it's too late, before it's hopeless for them. They need to hear the gospel and it is an urgent task that we take them the gospel. Now Jesus said in John 4, 35, don't say there are four months and then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields for they are ready for harvest. Jesus says it's urgent. Don't say four more months. Don't say three years from now. It's urgent that we go forward and reach people for Christ. The task is urgent. And when a farmer uh, gets to harvest time, he gets busy. Uh, we have some farmers in the church, you know this, much better than I. Uh, years ago, I lived in a cotton field. First church I pastored, I lived literally in a cotton field. There was cotton all around uh, me, and, and I didn't know a whole lot about cotton. It, it seemed like a pretty easy job. See those guys, and they just, they didn't do a whole lot, and they stood around and talked and spit tobacco, and, but until harvest season came. Now, when that cotton was ready, before the storms came and knocked it down, before the rain, before the bugs and everything else, when that cotton was ready, listen, those guys got busy. 
They would harvest cotton 24 hours a day. We, we could look out at two o'clock in the morning and see those, those cotton picking machines with all the lights on harvesting that cotton. When, when the harvest came, urgency came. And what we've got to recognize is that it, it's, it's urgent that the harvest is, is ready. We must be urgent about taking the gospel. You know, there are some jobs, there are some tasks that aren't urgent. Um, I, I thought about an astronomer uh, this week, and I don't know if we have any astronomy professors here, so take no offense at this, but your job is not very urgent. I mean, you can look at the stars tonight, or, or if you don't, look at them tomorrow, they'll still be there, right? They're not going anywhere. There's no urgency for an astronomer. I mean, there's no urgency for a bricklayer either. Um, now, maybe you need to get the job done, but if you don't lay the bricks today, the bricks will still be there tomorrow. They're not going to spoil. Uh, but, but for a farmer, when harvest time comes, if he's not urgent, if he postpones, if he's, if he's lazy, if he procrastinates, then the harvest is going to spoil in the field. And we are farmers we need to have the same urgency this manager had when he realized he was about to lose it all. He had to do something right then. We need to have that same urgency as a church because there are people we must reach for Christ before it's too late to reach them for Christ. We're farmers. Now, the second reason why we need to recognize that our time is limited is because our lives are short. Jesus said, work while you can, work while it is day. The time and the opportunity we have to serve Christ is limited. Uh, I think sometimes we think we're going to have all the days in the world, that we're going to live forever. Uh, but, but we're not. We're not. I want my life to count. I don't know how many more years God will let me serve, but I want my life to count of things that have kingdom importance and eternal value. And I don't want to wait until it's too late to invest my life in those things. Now, one application to this is uh, the strong desire that many people in our church, and I'm thankful for this, so listen closely so you don't hear the wrong thing. I'm thankful for this. But the many people in our church who desire to be a blessing to the ministry here after they die. Now that's happened two or three times this year. I talked to somebody even yesterday uh, about a, uh, a gift that's coming to our church through, uh, through an estate here in the next few uh, days or weeks. Uh, we're very thankful for that. And they come in usually at the perfect time to meet the perfect need. And we are thankful for that. But, but listen, let me talk to you, church. Uh, I, I want to have the biggest impact on the Lord's work while I'm still here. I believe that God's put me here and put you here for such a time as this. And that the needs that our church has, you listening? The needs our church has. He has put you and I here and he has provided for, for me and you at this time to meet this day's needs. Now there will be needs. If the Lord tarries, there will be needs after I'm gone. And God will put people here then who will need to take care of those needs. But I'm here today. And it's my responsibility if the paint's peeling off the wall. It's my responsibility if the, if the landscaping is bad. It's my responsibility if, if the elevator is unreliable. It's my responsibility. I'm here today. I mean, I want to be a blessing for a long time. But I'm telling you the urgent thing, and I, we learned this from the story, we've got to have some urgency. Today it's urgent. Today it's urgent. So the first thing we need to emulate in this shrewd man is that uh, he recognized his limited time. The second thing is he identified the desired outcome. Now I like this, right at the end of verse three, he said, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I think I like that because that would be my thought. You know, if I, if I were losing my job, you know, I don't know that I could, I'd be a very good digger. If you, if you paid me for how long a ditch I could dig, I'd be hungry man in a hurry. And I, I would be too ashamed to beg. Uh, so he, he recognized that 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 was the direction he was headed. And he decided that's not where he wanted to go. You got this? So he was headed toward that. He was headed toward being a ditch digger or a bread beggar. But he, he knew that's not where he needed to go, what, where he wanted to go. And he identified another place. He wanted to 
have a place to live. He wanted to be welcomed into other people's homes. Apparently didn't have his own home. He wanted to be welcomed in the homes of the other, other people. He identified where he wanted to be. And so it, he was shrewd in that. He saw where he was headed. He saw that there was a different destination he wanted to arrive at. And he figured out how to change his direction from where he was going to where he wanted to go. So that's being shrewd. That's being an adult, really. You know where you're going, you don't like it, so you, before you get there, right? Th this makes you an adult. Before you get there, you change to another direction. Do you know what the difference is between an adult and a child? Does anybody know what's the difference? You know, it's not intelligence, right? If, uh, if we gave an algebra test this morning, <laughs> What age group in our church do you think would score best? It wouldn't be yours. <laughs> I'm sorry. Or mine, right? So the difference between a child and an adult is not that the, you know, we're, we adults are intelligent and they're not. So that's probably the opposite. It's also not physical strength. If we had a wrestling match, which age group in the church do you think would win the wrestling match? Again, not yours. If we had the adult choir wrestle the youth choir, <laughs> I mean, we could sell tickets. That might fix a few things around here. But um, <laughs> so the difference between... Um, that make adults you know, better than youth is not physical strength. It's not intelligence. Here's what it is. An adult looks into the future and recognizes the likely destination of their actions and then does something about it. You know, a, a, a teenager will stay up watching Netflix all night long and not think about, I gotta go to school the next day. You know, a, a, a teenager will goof off on their schoolwork not recognizing what kind of impact that's gonna have for all the rest of their lives. Uh, a, a teenager will do, will do unsafe and unwise things, giving no consideration to uh, their physical health or the legality of the things they're doing. But an adult doesn't do those things. See, we look into the future, we recognize I'm headed down the wrong path, I'm gonna change. That's what this manager did. He didn't wait until he was unemployed to panic. He recognized this is about to come and I must do something different. God wants us to be shrewd in that uh, in, in that very, very same way. So, with that in mind, I want to share with you some of my shrewdness. So we have a lot of uh, investment professionals in our church and bankers, and that's a, that's a good thing. I'm not trying to steal your job, but um, I want to give some retirement advice. Can I, can I do that? I don't have a license, so you know, keep that in mind. Don't sue me. But um, I have a new retirement plan, and it, it pays Sometimes it'll pay a 50% dividend in just a couple of days. You interested in that? I mean, it, it can pay big, big dividends. So here, here's, what it, here's how it works. I, I found on sale a bunch of half-price loaf bread. And so I had enough money in my... Um, my retirement account to buy three grocery carts of loaf bread, okay? I've been saving up for a while. And um, listen, I got this stuff for like 75 cents a loaf. I, I got a, a deal on this bread. And I understand it's worth a lot more than that. I mean, I could turn around and sell this for a, for a whole lot more money. And so what I've done is I've invested all of my retirement savings in loaf bread. And my plan is in the next uh, few years, if the next 15 years before I hit 65, every month I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy more half price loaf bread. And when I turn 65 or 70, whenever my wife makes me retire or you make me retire, <laughs> I'm going to cash in this bread and I'm going to live like a king. That's my plan. Now, do you see a flaw in my plan? Anybody? Now, obviously the flaw is what? The bread is gonna spoil. The bread in a week, nobody is gonna want it, right? It, it, it might have been half price for me. I wouldn't be able to sell it for a penny on a dollar in a week or two uh, because the bread is gonna spoil. Now listen, I understand 
because I'm generally act like an adult, that if that if that's if that's my plan, it's not going to get me to the desired destination. But you know, we invest in loaf bread all the time. When we buy fancy cars and we go on fancy trips and and we enjoy the luxuries of life, and there's nothing wrong with that. Most of you have been very hard workers and you should enjoy the fruit of your labor. But when we invest in those things, listen, we're investing in things that last about as long as loaf bread. And what, what this what Jesus is telling us in this parable is that we have a chance to invest in something that will last forever. That we need, to, we need to raise our focus not on next week or next year or 10 years from now, but we need to look at eternity. We need to look at what's going to happen when I get to heaven. We need to look at how can we spend our money such that it pays dividends, not now, not just now, but it pays dividends for eternity. We need to have an investment plan that looks beyond our lives and all the way to, to, to eternity. You've heard pastors say before, and I've said this before, uh, you can't take it with you. You ever heard that? You can't take it with you. But you know what Jesus is saying in this parable? Because he commends this shrewd guy who, who looked to the future and figured out a way that, that, that he could be okay at the other end of this. Jesus said you can take it with you. If you invested in the right things, you can take it with you. If you invested in the things of God, the word of God and the souls of men, uh, you can take it with you. We, we, need to, we need to be shrewd. We need to spend our money, invest our money in such a way that it doesn't spoil or rot, but has some eternal value. We need to enjoy what God has blessed us with, but we don't need to invest it all in loaf bread. We need to invest much of it in something that will outlast us. Now, let me tell you the third thing very quickly. Uh, this, this shrewd man leveraged his resources for the future. He had some resources. He had a little bit of time and he had a little bit of money. His money was in the form of these IOUs, but he had a little bit of time and a little bit of money. And so he leveraged, you know what that means, where you use it now for something greater down the road. He leveraged his resources, a little bit of time, a little bit of money for the future so that they would pay off in the future. We have the same two resources. I've got a little bit of time and a little bit of money. And God has given me an opportunity now to take my resources, my little bit of time and my little bit of money, and invest them in such a way that they will pay dividends down the road. Now, I want to look back at verse 9, because this is where Jesus is applying the parable to us. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves. What is he talking about there? He's talking specifically about do things that will cause people to come into the kingdom of God. I want my life to bring in people to God's kingdom. I want people to be saved because of my testimony. I want people to be saved because of my billfold. I want people to be saved because of my family. I want to invest my whole life in people coming into the kingdom of God. And the way Jesus phrases that, I think this is interesting. He, he says that those people who come into the kingdom of God because of the outpouring in my life, that they will be my friends, my friends. I don't know exactly how that'll work in heaven, uh, but wouldn't it, won't it be something to stand in heaven and, and be introduced to people and, and, and those people be announced to you as this person is in heaven today because of your investment, because of your words, because of your money. That's what he's talking about, that we need, to, we need to live now so that we're making friends in heaven, that we are increasing the number of people in heaven that'll be there because of what God does through our lives. So look back at verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by worldly wealth. So, so what he's saying here is you've got some worldly stuff. Look at it like this. I've got a bunch of Monopoly games at home, and I have actually more Monopoly money than I have real money 
Any of you in that same category? I've got more Monopoly money than real money. But I have thought about it. I cannot figure out any way to convert. If you know how to do this, let me know. I don't know how to convert the Monopoly money into real money. I mean, wouldn't it be great if you could do that? You know, at the end of the Monopoly game, you get all of that stuff. So it's impossible. I've thought about it. It's impossible to convert the Monopoly money to real money. But here's, but that's what Jesus is talking about here in the middle of verse 9 when, when he says, so I can do this eternal thing and I can accomplish it with, with worldly wealth. So your worldly wealth is like Monopoly money. At the end of this game, it goes back in the box, right? In this game, we'll have a funeral and all that and all your money just goes, who knows where it goes, okay? You think you know, you probably don't know where it'll go. You just don't know. So it's all gone. I mean, at the end of the game, you just fold it up, stick it back in the box. But he says in this situation, you can take that temporary, that monopoly money, that worldly wealth that we'd have, and you can do something with it that makes an eternal difference. And so then look at the third thing he says right there in verse nine. So I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, that means when you die, when you die, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. See, he, this shrewd man was looking, looking for people to welcome him into their homes after he was fired. I look forward Will you do this with me? Let us look forward to the day that when this life is over and we stand in heaven, that people are welcoming us into their heavenly homes because God used us. God worked through us and our money, our worldly wealth to lead them uh, to have uh, an eternal an eternal home. I, I'm running out of time, but I have one more corny illustration. Can I show it to you? I want to make sure you get it. I've got a rope here that, uh, that uh, Walmart says is 100 feet long. I would toss it out there, but I'm afraid I'd hit somebody, and you might be the key giver for this campaign. I don't want <laughs> to waste that. But uh, it just, you just have to trust me. It's a long rope. It would go up and down the aisles. It's a, it's a long rope. So here's what I want you to think about. I've tied a knot at the end of this long, long rope, and this knot represents, this knot represents this life that you live. Well, 50, 60, 70 years, 80, 100 years. I don't know how long you're going to live. You don't either. But it's all represented by that knot. That's your, that's your life. How much, uh, how much money does God give you to spend in your life? If you work for 40, 50 years and you add all that, it's probably a lot of money. But, but God's given you, I mean, that's your life. You've got days, you've got a little bit of wealth, a little bit of time. But see, this rope is a lot more than just the knot. And we're gonna make decisions in that little knot with that little bit of time and that little bit of money. And what Jesus is saying in this weird parable is that decisions we make in that little knot are going to affect the rest of our eternity. And longer and longer and longer, and if we had more time, I'd go through every little uh, fiber of this rope. All of this is influenced by the decisions, the commitments, the priorities that we have. In that 50, 60, 70 years, God's given us a little bit of time and a little bit, a little bit of money. Every once in a while, I uh, get an opportunity to talk with somebody about, uh, somebody outside the church about giving. And it actually happened a week or two ago, a couple of weeks ago, it was funny. But sometimes I'll be on an airplane or I'll be talking to a neighbor or vendor or somebody and, and we just start talking, you know, we talk about their business and we'll talk about my business, so to speak. And, and then they'll, they'll ask about, well, how, you know, how do you get enough money? You know, it costs uh, two or three million dollars to run our ministries here in a year. So how do you get enough money to do that? And I say, well, you know, it's, it's remarkable because we have just plain old people in our church that give thousands and thousands, some of them tens of thousands of dollars a year for our ministry to go forward. And we don't throw a banquet in their name. They don't get their name on a plaque. There aren't any perks. They just give. And people will be baffled over that. I'm telling you, I've had the funniest conversation with people because they think that is, can I use a, a, I know we don't want our kids to say this, but uh, 
so cover your kids' ears. But people will, will say, and I know they're thinking this, that's just stupid. Who would give away $10,000 a year, $5,000, $20,000? Who would give away good money? They don't get anything. Nobody, nobody puts their name on something. Nobody. They just give it. They think that's the dumbest thing in the world. And you know what? They're right from their perspective because they're thinking that it all goes back in the box at the end of the game. But if you believe there's something more than this life, if you believe there's something beyond this life, it's not dumb. It's the best investment you can make. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed. The most important thing in the world to us is not money. It's that people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. God doesn't want your money. If he wanted your money, he'd take your money. It's not what this is about. If you don't know Christ is your savior in a moment, there'll be, we're going to sing. There'll be people in the front that can talk to you about how this could be the very best day of your life as you come to know Christ as your savior. And I want to invite you to come forward, just privately, personally, take their hand. They won't ask you to say anything to the church. They just want to talk to you and let them help you come to know Christ as your savior. But listen, church, this is, uh, I think this is a critical three weeks. I think much depends on what happens. And don't think, well, it depends on somebody else in the church that might have a little more money than me. It depends on somebody that can write a check that uh, I could never write. Now listen, we're gonna leave the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes up to the Lord. I tell you, it depends on us just being faithful, every one of us, to do our part. Would you let today be the beginning of your prayer or what's my part? What's my, I'm not holding out for a bigger project. God's put me here today for a reason. My money doesn't need to go for a need 10 years from now or 30 years from now. No, I'm here for today. What's my part to solve the problem today? Father, may you be honored in this. May at the end of this campaign, we stand up and say, what a great God we serve. May it make an impact in people's lives. May it change families. May it save marriages. May children come to know you as their savior. Because of the faithfulness of your people in the coming weeks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.